From somewhere deep in the cloud and the corners of the earth, this is the Killing It Podcast with a focus on helping you make sense and dollars of all the things I keep with your hosts, Dave Sobel, Ryan Morris, and Carl Polichuk. Welcome, everybody, to episode 185 of the Killing It podcast. And a shout out to our friend Amy, who says that she only listens to this in the car and she always says, Killing It along with you guys. Oh, that's awesome. That's, that's, that's awesome. That's actually, that's way better than getting a t shirt with Killing It on it. <laughs> I know. Sing along with us in the audience. That's excellent. Exactly. <laughs> that is that is fantastic. All right. I want to have some fun. Sure. Uh, gents, has anything unexplained ever happened to you? So I know what the question means, and I'm just going to answer it a little bit differently. I'm going to say yes all the time because <laughs> I'm an idiot. So. I, the things that I don't understand happen all the time, and, uh, and particularly in the dating world. But uh, no, no, no uh, spaceships from outer space or Sasquatch or any of that kind of stuff. See, see, that's exactly the point, right? The only things that are that could happen to you that are not explained now can be explained later because trust me, there was a time when the radio signal seemed like voodoo, and and now people go. Oh yeah, there's actual waves in the atmosphere that that transmit audio, right? That's something that you will eventually. Now, this is not to say I would say never have I had any unexplained, but it doesn't mean I don't look for that stuff. Like I will highly endorse if anybody hasn't done this, go to Estes Park, Colorado, visit the Stanley Hotel and take the guided ghost tour because that is the the facility where Stephen King stayed for a season when he wrote the book, The Shining. And I will tell you that even if you do not actually encounter a ghost, that is one fantastic experience and, and getting to relive his process and method with all of that stuff, phenomenal. But no, I've never actually, I look for them. The- but I don't believe they're out and now, there. And now, with Carl being all smart about, it, well, there's all this unexplained in the world, and, and I'm going to have my ghost <laughs> story and sound like the moron, right? So, so I, all right, I, I have, I have a ghost story okay. in that. Uh, so, my wife and I have had two cats in the house for a very long time. We started out with just one, the first cat that I adopted when, uh, when before we got married. And Sadie lived with us for 15 years or so like that. And she was a, a sweet old girl at the end. Uh, and the two cats, that when we, she, she got a little a younger sister. And we had collars with bells on them because the younger cat was very active. And I wanted to know where uh, she was in the house by the sound, right? So, they, so you could always hear the little bell moving around the house knowing what was going on. Sadie passed. And... One night, we're, and we only had Trixie, the second cat at this point, and we're in bed and sleeping, and Trixie is on the bed with, <laughs> with us. And I hear the little bell down the hall. <laughs> and there is no other living being in the house, but I hear the little bell, and so did Sharon. 
And so we both, the next day, we we talked about it, and we, and we agreed. We said, actually, we were comfortable with being haunted by our first cat. And so uh, for we were we believe we were haunted for a short period of time until everything was deemed okay, and we have never heard it again. See, that's the thing. I, I've never had the experience. Anything weird stuff I didn't understand eventually could be explained. But I think it'd be so cool to experience that. That's why I love to hear other people's stories and then debunk them. <laughs> so I can't explain it. Don't have anything more for it. I have given it a positive version of the story because it, that way I'm not freaked out all the time. <laughs> I'm, I'm open to it. I just haven't had the experience. IT Service Provider University helps you improve the business side of your business. We launched IT Service Provider University in 2013, and today we offer more than 20 courses on every aspect of running your consulting business. ITSPU provides training and pathways to certification for individual IT service providers, as well as company-level certifications. Pathways include management, technician, sales and marketing, service manager, and front office. Learn more about professional classes and certification at ITSPU.com. All right, sirs, let's move into our first topic here. And the topic is the most important election that you have never heard of. And what I mean by that is we're linking to a couple of different articles. This is one of those where it would actually be very much worth your time to go to the show notes, click on the articles, learn a little bit beyond what we're going to discuss here today. The ITU, the International Telecommunications Union, which just sounds to you and me like another trade association, and we're all very familiar with so many of those. It's actually an arm of the United Nations, and it represents the global standards communities that determine how and why the internet gets used, telephone systems as well as the internet. Well, they just recently hosted the election for who would be the secretary general and therefore set the agenda. And it was with, you know, this thing happened and the whole wide world didn't even know it was happening. And it was literally an American woman who was up for the position as well as a Russian man. And the two of them did not hide their agenda. They did not disguise what their intentions were. And quite literally, if you read their position statements, it was the Internet as we know it versus the splinter net of authoritarian control. And without even having to participate or be aware of it, we and humanity as we know it dodged a bullet last week when this election happened and uh, and things turned out the way they did. So. My question to you guys is, uh, did you know it was happening? And do you have opinions about how this might have affected the world of the interweb? All right. Plug for, plug for my other podcast, because I did know about it, because I was reading the news all the time. And I, I will laugh at it. Like, so I, I reviewed this story. And for, to give the insight back, is, is I made the decision not to cover it on that podcast, because I could not draw a direct line to the day-to-day -day activities of an IT services organization. That was why I didn't cover it there. However, I do think it's exactly the kind of philosophical larger topics that we bring up on this show. <laughs> and so, uh, so from my perspective, it's like, yeah, I was aware of it. Oh, and by the way, like the, the, this is exactly that element of 
which way our sections of the internet go. And it's surprising how, how small the community of people that control sections of it are. Yeah. And how easy it is to influence sections of this. Uh, you know, I think this is one of those er elements where, like, I'm really glad we have governments and organizational groups that are working hard to do this kind of work. We must continue to be vigilant if we want a particular direction. But it's important to note that this was very intentional, right? They actually essentially had platforms and were making choices about the direction. And the member countries collectively have said, well, we want to stick with open internet and we want to go in that direction. So for me, the action, the, the takeaway was, all right, there's enough leaders in countries that continue to believe open internet is the way to generally run the resource. And I would say what we probably experienced, I was not aware of it at the time, but what we probably experienced was simply putting on pause the eventual splinternet that now that these two sects are open and willing to discuss like, hey, we might actually go do this. Um, I think that if the Russians had won, if that view of the world had dominated, you would have simply had the organizations in the West say, you know what, we're going to stay open and we're, we're just not going to be authoritarian. And so, you know, that would force the splinter net at that point. Um, I think that what you're going to see is ch both China and Russia sort of beginning the steps of formalizing the split that we've talked about on this show so many times. And drawing the line to MSPs, I would say uh, it's not an immediate thing, but within five years, I think you're going to have to figure out how you're going to deal with this. And, you know, we've been for 15 years, we've been trying to figure out how to, to get around the fact that the Chinese are making the chips inside of our routers. And, you know, we've been aware of that and dealing with it. Uh, but now when you say, oh, there's going to be this big line between our internet and their internet, and here are the rules that have to change, um, there's, a, there's a big day coming. And luckily, uh, we're on this side of the, uh, of the wall. <laughs> Yes, and, and see, that's that's my takeaway from it, Carl. This is the quiet part out loud. This is not new, right? North Korea and Iran and Russia, China have had their own approaches to how open they will allow the Internet to be with varying degrees of the word, uh, the definition of open, right? Um, that's been around, but it's always been hush-hush. It's always been the thing that happened and the world was aghast. We were offended. We couldn't imagine that anybody would try to censor humanity that way, except that when you stop and realize that we live in the real world, you'd go, well, of course they're doing that, right? We knew it. They denied it. It was always something going on. They're no longer denying it. They're literally coming out. And for all the people who are like, oh, the splinter net, that sounds like an alarmist definition of the future, that, that it's never going to be that way something will happen that will work it out. I think you're exactly correct, Carl. This is the day when we realized they're no longer denying that this is the strategy. They're no longer denying that that's the way they use hardware and software. And if you buy that technology, it will come. You remember the day when the Huawei conversation happened and we were all like, what do you mean they've programmed in a backdoor that allows the government to see into all the traffic on there? How dare you suggest that thing? This is those organizations, those two countries specifically coming out and saying, 
hey guys, I put in a back door. There's no denying it. It's going to happen and we will regulate and authoritarian spin everything that happens on the internet within our borders. So that's that's a monumental day. Yeah. It's important to remember that any country that has an authoritarian set of leaders that wants to split themselves off can do so regardless of the root decision of the internet. So there, there is an element of, of the fact that, you know, we will always have this tension of saying there is an open internet and even on an open internet, there may be sections of that internet that are closed, right? That they've decided that they are closed communities. Right. That can also be true on an open internet, right? You can decide you have a section of the internet that is private that you run and maintain in the way that you want to do so. Uh, I am alluding also to the fact that there is some element of, you know, this debate that will be happening on social media platforms because it is not necessarily a bad thing that a community may say we want to have a certain set of conditions and not let other ones in. That can be a positive thing too, uh, despite what some voices may be crying about right now. But that's a topic <laughs> for another day. Sadly, we're out of time for topic number one, but let me just take a break and remind everybody, please, 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 if you have not yet subscribed to us, search on your favorite podcatcher for The Killing It Podcast. And it's killing, the whole word killing, properly spelled, and the space IT. We're not killing IT, we're killing it. We're killing it. Uh, so search for the Killing It podcast and subscribe to us. Topic number two. Well, it turns out Google shut down Stadia, their online gaming platform. This is interesting because the, uh, the article we're pointing to with Axios is questioning, well, is, is Google just not able to innovate? And I would take a different spin and let you guys jump in here. I think one of the, the things going on today is the really great programmers who want to do gaming, they don't currently find a home at Google. And so it may, it may be that all the great programmers are over at the competition, especially Microsoft, uh, and that's where they're, they're choosing to work. Uh, and Google, for how, however much money they have, just can't get it together when it comes to the gaming platform. Okay, so I got to go fat on this one too, because uh, as a gamer, I've been tracking this one for a while. And it was interesting that for the behind the scenes, for those of you listening, like I didn't add this one. Uh, so, so it's interesting. What, what I think is interesting is, is that, that you got you, Carl, you and Ryan did and had interest in this. So let me flesh this out and give you guys a little bit of color over, over what's happened and why it's insightful. And there's a really good lesson here. So, uh, streaming gaming is is generally considered one of the very much the future of the way this this can go for the main reason that for all the same reasons that we have cloud SaaS and and that we've moved software into uh, you know into the cloud is a cloud version of gaming makes a ton of sense based on computational power required to do it and the ability to maintain it. There's some real interest in gaming as a service where you are making money in a game that evolves over time. Uh, Google is not the only player in this space. In particular, Microsoft is very much a, a player in this space with their cloud gaming, which looks very similar from a pure technology perspective. Now, here's what Google got wrong. They screwed up the business model exceptionally badly when it came to Stadia. Stadia required not only a subscription to the platform, but then required you to buy the games 
which you then also did not own and could not port your data out of it. Okay, so you so so you were not only locked in, but then also had you know your presence within the game was locked to the platform. So it became a very expensive thing to do to build to be a player in this ecosystem with all kinds of restrictions that are not natural for players, as opposed to say what Microsoft is doing, where Microsoft still happily sells you games, or you can subscribe to their. Xbox Game Pass, which gives you just this massive library of things you can pull off the shelf and use, you also still own your save files in those circumstances, right? So I could say I like a game, I could then buy it. This is playing out really interestingly because there's literally one guy who put 6,000 hours into Red Dead Redemption 2 on Stadia and is potentially going to lose all of that time investment and save file by the shutdown. Wow. So it's so there's a real element of like so the, the reason this is interesting for everybody is Google did not understand the buying habits and the way consumers wanted to use the technology and I think that's thematic of many of the things that they have killed is they have they have an idea but then they don't figure out how the people want to use it and more importantly how they will pay for it and they will make money off of it. See, and I think that is the very direct line from this topic to the audience of technology, professionals, and service providers. It doesn't matter how cool your technology is. If you cannot build a business model that aligns to A, the problem the customer is trying to solve, and B, the way they want to consume and pay for that technology, it really doesn't matter how good we are at the bits and bytes. That's a harsh lesson for an industry of professionals who invent and deliver and integrate and support technologies. We have often thought for an entire generation or more, as long as I'm the best techie in the room or I have the best tech in the room, then I win hands down. Google is just one example after another of how that is fundamentally untrue. Right now, Google's huge. Google makes a ton of money. Google has defined the direction of our industry for a couple of decades now. And yet, that doesn't mean they're a good business of technology. They're just like, they will invent things because they've got all of the R&D budget on the planet. They've got all of the engineers to design whatever new technology you could possibly imagine. And then they bring it to market and they dink around for a little while and it doesn't hit the threshold of growth that they need for it to be material to their business model, which again, I get that's a big challenge. If you're doing hundreds of billions of dollars in revenue and you invent a new thing that generates a hundred million, your CFO is going to go, that's stupid. Stop working on that. That doesn't rise to the level of material interest in our business. I get that. It's very hard for them to do, but over and over and over, they do search, they do digital advertising. They've come up with maps and a new Android operating system for phones. But if you were Google and you had literally unlimited R&D dollars, don't you think you might actually be able to stand up another new business that could become material in the so world? Here's the, here's the question, I guess, for Dave. So part of what's going on here is edge computing, right? Which maybe Google isn't the best at, 
But if the issue is really about their business model, if, if the technology works, why couldn't Google take a breath, push a reset button and redo the business model, redo the pricing structure, redo the licensing, you know what I mean? Because they've, they've clearly evolved their advertising strategy over the years, their search strategy over the years, right? They, they know how to be flexible at a grand global scale. Um, so if it's really not about the technology, how can the business model really have held them up unless they were just so dedicated that, that they couldn't get out of their own way? Uh, so dedicated they couldn't get out of their own way. I mean, it's it like, like, well, there's, there's a certain degree of like, they, there's sort of a build it and they will come mentality that appears to be very common with Google and their products, right? We've just built this amazing thing and it will just work. I would, would posit, right? If I, if I was actually smart about the, this, you know, and I was engaged with this, like Sony has a, a gap in their technology needs around where Google was working. Sony's offering, they've got the PlayStation, but they have not done a great job with figuring out cloud gaming. You sort of go Sony plus Google, that's a that's an interesting mashup, right? But that would require them to understand the market a little bit better, getting get you know, put some money into building the relationship, doing not just lobbing the thing out into the world and hoping everyone will come. And it's kind of it, it's indicative. This one is a particularly big mess because they're having to, to clean up developers that have put time into building versions of Stadia. They've had to give all the money back, by the way, everyone. They're giving everyone back all of mm. the money paid into the ecosystem. This is a very large check they're writing back out. I really do think, Carl, that to your answer to your question is, is, you know, you measure twice, cut once. They didn't do any of that stuff on the front end. And so it becomes this spiraling large amount of money in the end when you kill it or you just keep throwing money in till you get it right, I guess. Well, except that that's, that, that's the thing, right? I totally agree. I think the technology actually works. I, I you know, the more I have learned about that lossless computing capability in a cloud-hosted world for real-time gaming experience, which is very, very important. Um, it freaking works. Like, how about don't just throw the baby out with the bathwater? How about re-engineer the business model and bring it to market in a way that people will, in fact, pay for it? Because, my goodness, that, I mean, if they're going to just walk away from it, I guarantee there's somebody out there in the world who would be like, guys, send me your source code. I'd be happy to try to build Stadia.2 and bring it to market. I'm going to keep us on track because I'm going to get us into topic number three. Because while, micro, while Google kills that one, Amazon launched a whole bunch of products just recently. And in fact, as they always do, throw a million things in, into the world. Let's talk about one specifically. Let's talk about their new Halo Rise device, which is de designed to go in your nightstand. Uh, it's got a clock and it's got a, a lights that will adjust based on time and, and such. But what it's designed to do is actually monitor your sleeping and it's using radar to do it. Combining that with information from about the room, like temperature, humidity, brightness, to measure the quality of sleep. Now, this fits very clearly into Amazon's approach of what they're calling ambient intelligence, also known as ambient computing where the computer is always there and they're drawing intelligence from the world. Uh, gents, 
Are you excited at the idea of putting a device that has radar on your nightstand? So, so I didn't buy into the Amazon products that determine when somebody's at my front door and what they look like and whether my garage door is open and what my temperature in my room is or mapping my entire house with a vacuum. <laughs> I didn't buy into any of that. So I'm not excited about this, but I'm not joking when I tell you Amazon is putting information from all of those devices into the big picture because they want to monitor your health in ways that Apple can't. And it literally that's their competition. And so, you know, I think you're going to see both Apple and Amazon take huge leaps on the healthcare front. And part of it has to do with how many ways can we evaluate your body so that we can talk to your insurance company, sell you medicines, sell you non-medical processes or procedures, including meditation apps and whatever. Um, it's a huge feedback loop. On one hand, some people think that this is a beautiful thing moving us into a beautiful future. Um, I haven't yet bought any of these devices and I don't expect to. <laughs> Well, see, and I think I think you're correct in your in your conclusion, Carl, that this is steering towards health related applications. Uh, think about the Apple Watch, right? That was originally sold as an interesting to have. It grew up to become a massive business for Apple. And the hook that got most people in was the activity app, right? It was monitoring whether or not you were walking, standing, exerting, etc., and it gave you a lot better intelligence about the way you are in your body in the waking hours. And then they added the sleep app, and then we all said, yeah, but in order to get any data from the sleep app, I have to leave my watch on overnight. A, the battery didn't last that long, so it kept dying in the middle, and B, I'm sleeping with a watch on my wrist, and it's a little weird to get used to in the beginning just because I didn't want to have the device connected to me like that. If you can take that kind of intelligence and put it into my world without me physically connected to a device, that's an interesting advancement of the art form. However, if you're telling me that the way you're going to do that is an ambient sensor that can be detailed enough that it can tell when, my, when I am breathing and when I am in REM sleep and when I am actually tossing and turning and measure the quality of things, that is so unbelievably intrusively big brother. Like we've always conceived of big brother equals bad and big brother equals some form of surveillance and, and technology that can be aware of where you are. None of us ever actually conceived of big brother watching your rapid eye movement and measuring the depth and quality of your breathing during your sleeping hours. That's not just a camera watching whether or not I'm in the room. That's a very intensely interpersonal connection that if you take that outside of a device on your bedroom and you install one in every lamp that you pass by in the world, again, I hate coming back to Minority Don't Report, but damn. That's no, exactly, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cut you off there and I'm going to jump in. So... Because because I want to be a little contrarian on this point. So unlike Carl, I actually finally – and I even recently broke my rule of no cameras on the inside of the house uh, because in the second appearance of our cats in this episode, 
uh, our older cat, our older cat was having some some bladder issues and kept peeing in the house, and I needed to figure out what was going on. So I ended up putting some cameras in to to monitor and try and figure out what was go- what was going on. Now my strategy was I put them at ankle level, so you actually can't see any faces. So these I have cameras <laughs> literally mounted towards the floor, so I can see cats, not people, uh, which makes me feel reasonably better about the privacy because there's. You know, you can see my feet, but nothing more. Uh, I am I am very much looking at this kind of on balance to say, look, is there net positives here? I am intrigued by Amazon disrupting healthcare, a space that is pretty bad. Uh, if they think that if, if they can get to the point of data doing a better job with that, I am intrigued. Uh, I will say, as, as somebody who has completely embraced Apple Health, including like now I track uh, my blood pressure meds using Apple Health. Like I like being able to have that level of information when I go to the doctor and I can go, okay, here's here's where I'm at. This is the you know like this is the the condition. How this is how I'm sleeping. This is my these are my I've been good about my drugs. Like like here like here's all the stuff you need to know, and we can get to better diagnostics. Uh, you know, you can have the do I trust them argument, right? But at some level, they're so entrenched in our lives uh, <laughs> that, that I just know we need to start doing better about who owns the data and who manages the data. But the cat is out of the bag in terms of, like, the fact that it exists. So I'd rather optimize and get good, better results for myself versus just selling away my privacy, which has been previously the, the bit is, well, now if I'm getting actual better outcomes that has value to me <laughs> so i personally would love to see this device be priced at 10 or, or 50 times what it's worth so that it becomes a specialty device that i would only buy or have an insurance company buy if somebody had a specific health need that this was going to monitor uh, I'm, I'm not a fan of the hey let's just monitor everybody and say oh here now somebody breaks into a database and drags in google maps and like oh here's all the people who are having trouble sleeping through the night here's all the people who are having trouble with REM sleep here let me sell to your insurance company all the people who are not sleeping properly right who are more likely to have accidents and all kinds of other health issues and so forth and so on and i just think that the uh, the downside far outweighs the upside uh, if this is a mass device, if it's a specialty thing, different story. See, that's a very logical, reasonable tweak to the business strategy. I think you could control it and have it much more uh, regulatable if you had it in that kind of a, a deployment. But Dave, you can't just skim over the fact that this is data about my health and all of that is actionable and therefore valuable. And I'm not just giving up privacy in return for nothing. I'm giving up privacy in return for literal quality of life. That's all cool, except that when you insert the word Amazon into there, it's not just a we could have the debate about whether we could trust them. It is a they have proven over and over again that they cannot be trusted with that because they are monetizing it in ways they do not disclose and using it a lot the vacuum mapping your house in ways that you've not yet anticipated much less authorized so cool technology but in those hands do we just trust that they're going to magically use it ethically i don't think that's a safe all right well then i'm going to i'm going to put the cherry on the sunday and go so pass data privacy laws, right? Like I'm going to like, like if, if, 
if you want that pass pass regulations well, that protect the data privacy like you you've got to you've got to have that or else we go oh it's not allowed but it is we're out of time but that law wouldn't prevent a breach where the you know people were supposed to be keeping all this private and then the bad guys came in from russia and decided to release it so well, that's a whole other topic. That's a whole other, <laughs> that's a whole other episode. So anyway, thank you all for tuning in. This has been episode 185 of the Killing It. <laughs> podcast. Thanks for tuning in to the Killing It Podcast. Please share with your friends and tell everyone to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and all the podcast places. Join us next week and help us keep killing it in the technology business.